And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high atop the Code Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf sharing a very spotty Skype connection with special guests Christopher Barzak and Mary Rickert on episode 145 of the Code Street Podcast! (laughs) And, I don't know, I I, I have to say something after that. Yeah, you do. Um, Anyway. (laughs) You make it a giant non-secretary, Gary. Uh, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm unnerved. We've, we've spent, people don't know this, but we've spent 15 minutes dealing with demons of the internet. Um, but at any rate, no, this is a, this is a legendary podcast because I think we mentioned this, Jonathan, I don't know, Mary, if you, by the way, Chris, Mary, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Could we clarify that's Christopher Barzak and Mary Rickert who are joining us, Gary? For, the, yes. for those who are just joining in at home. And yeah. for those of you who read only fiction, that's M. Rickert, which, <laughs> which is an iconic name. It was, it was a great... Uh, by the way, Mary, why did you start using just the initial? Oh, there are two things going on at the time. One was that um, I just liked the idea of being invisible to the fiction, I like mm. there to be no no source in my name to figure out, you know, the person behind the screen. And that was one reason. And then the other reason is I thought I was going to have so many book signings and so many times that it would just be lovely to only have to sign M instead <laughs> of Mary. <laughs> I was really young when I made the choice. <laughs> that was, I think there's a third reason too, Mary. Tell me, remind me. <laughs> Chris has known no me for so long, and he knows me better than I know me sometimes. <laughs> you told me that, that M could get it done. M can get it done, but I, I didn't know that when I decided it, you know. But it, it did become sort of a feeling of she's just a little tougher than Mary, and she could get <laughs> the job done. But I recognize that later, but that's really true. See, I actually read a different explanation for it that you oh, gave in no, an interview. No. Yeah, you gave an an, inter- <laughs> an interview to Idiomancer or somebody early on, and uh, and at that point you said because, if I recall correctly, what was it that um, some of the stuff that you were writing you felt was in a masculine voice as well, and you felt yes. that gender a gendered name would get in the way of that. Yes, yes, uh, that kind of that does kind of go with the you know wanting to be invisible in the fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And have like as few few of clues as possible to anything outside of the fiction. You know, to keep the circle closed. That was part mm. of it. And at that time, I was writing, I think, quite a few things in a male voice. And and did you ever? I mean, did you ever feel that there was also a, I guess, a, a gender bias in the field kind of a thing? Because quite often, people feel that when someone uses a an initial rather than their full name it's so that their gender is hidden and they don't have to deal with being male or female or whatever when they're interacting with the, the science fiction and fantasy field at large i wasn't aware of it when i made the decision because i was pretty ignorant about fields and ideas and fields um but later on i did become aware of that and it was interesting because sometimes um a couple of my my early stories had uh, issues of rape in them, and at the time I was doing you know M record and nobody knew who I was, and the response to what I was doing in those stories when people thought I was a man writing rape stories was different than when they realized I was a woman writing the same stories. Uh, so yeah, I did I did notice that there is uh, people carry things into names <laughs> and people carry things into what they expect from uh, each sex and it's but it's been interesting to observe but i was really ignorant about that stuff when i made the decision it sounds to me very sophisticated it sounds to me like what you're doing is forcing the reader to draw himself or herself into the story in a kind of collaborative way in other words if you if, if we read the story assigning a gender to it we're sort of complicit in what the story is doing. Yeah. In addition to which, you always have the chance of a senior, major, legendary science fiction writer describing your voice as ineluctably masculine. <laughs> <laughs> Does everybody know what I'm referring to there? Yes. <laughs> I tell. <don't. laughs> 
would that be Mr. Silverberg and uh, Mr. Uh, Tiptree? Yeah, oh, I wouldn't. Okay. Yeah. Mary, have you won a tip tree before? Oh no. I think you should win one just for being you. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think I mean, the whole name. Mary and I. Well, no, actually, uh, we should. Mary uh, won the Crawford Award, which I'm very proud of. Uh, as did Christopher. We have two former Crawford Award winners here. Uh, and since then, it's been at WizCon, and I, 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 Chris, I think I've had the same reaction you have. That you know, Mary ought to be one of the titans of Wiscon in some ways, yeah. Uh, yeah. and she doesn't want to be, do you? <laughs> I think this is, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, just coming off of the d- discussing Mary's reasoning behind, you know, choosing the the initial and uh, in order to for the author to remain invisible so that the reader can can engage with the fiction without trying, you know, trying to guess at who the author is and to read things into the fiction based on a name. Uh, I, I think that to some, in some ways carries over, you know, uh, uh, to, to Mary in, in, in how she engages with, with almost anything is that, uh, you know, at, at, at a conference, yeah, like WizCon, I would think she would be one of the, you know, the grand dames there. Um, but, you know, Mary remains invisible. <laughs> uh, and the thing is, is that not completely, because I know one of the things that, that I always see at, at a WizCon, um, or any, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's the one that, that Mary and I always see each other at. Um, but, so I can't say with with any certainty how how it works out at every single other con- kind of convention she's been to, but uh, whenever uh, she's there, there are people who stumble upon her by accident and <laughs> are like, "Oh my God, you're you're M. Rickert," and blah, 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 you know. Well, I, 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 it's I think it's kind of how people come across their fiction too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of accidental, and suddenly you're in the presence of of this amazing I do want to ask you, how did you guys get to meet each other, uh, Chris and Mary? Because, I mean, you have this thing where you started your careers at almost exactly the same time, I think within about your first post published within two or three months of each other. You, Mary, and FNSF. And like you, Chris, were first published, if I recall correctly, in Lady Churchill's. So it was all yeah, around like, the same time. Did, have you guys known each other that long or, or, or what? No. No, I know this story. I don't know if Hello? you want to tell her to you. If you want me to, Mary. you you tell Chris. Okay. <laughs> no. Hello. The, oh, you lost Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Okay, Jonathan can't hear us now. Headphones are clagged out. Okay, what we're gonna do is something really dramatic and metafictional. Uh, we'll go ahead and our conversation and hope that Jonathan will be able to rejoin us at some point. But Mary, you okay. were, no, Mary, you were asking Chris to describe how the two of you met. Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, I happened to have read Mary's first story in FNSF, uh, The Girl Who Ate Butterflies, uh, and I was just completely astonished by how beautiful it was, and I had never encountered any kind of story that was told in that way and in that that kind of a voice before, and it was just absolutely, um, just took the floor right out from underneath me, and I had been trying to, you know, be published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction for quite a while, and um, uh, in any case, uh, without any luck. But, <laughs> but in any case, I, 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 the next story I submitted to Gordon Van Gelder, I wrote, I wrote in my uh, uh, submission letter to him that. I just wanted to thank him for, for publishing that story by M. Record. I didn't know who this person was. Mm-hmm. I had never encountered their fiction before, but I was really intoxicated by it, and that I hoped that he would continue to publish that author. And um, uh, he rejected me. <laughs> and, but he, he wrote me this really kind letter, and he said, I, you know, that, I, that he was so happy, you know, that I, I thought this was amazing that he, he actually read submission letters, but he had read it and he he said that he he was so happy that I I felt the same way about that story as he did, and mm-hmm. um, uh, probably about three years after that, um, Mary and I were both invited to come to a, a workshop called Blue Heaven. 
uh, it was the the inaugural workshop for uh, uh, for that particular one that that has is still going on today. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we were both invited to that. And um, when uh, when I got the invitation to it, I. I I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go or not because it was a novel workshop specifically, and I I, I hadn't written a novel yet, oh. and um, I had only worked in short stories. And uh, but when the person who was putting the the workshop together, Charles Coleman Finley, um, told me who was all coming, I saw M. Rickard, and then off to the side in parentheses, Mary. And oh. I said. Holy crap! I've got to write a novel. <laughs> I, I want to go. I want to. This is my chance to meet Mary to meet M. Rickert. and mm-hmm. um, uh, so I said yes, even though I'd, I'd never even you know uh, you know written a chapter before in my life. And uh, I know you're two novels ahead of her. <laughs> I know. I didn't know that, Chris. It's very yeah. That's yeah. And. Um, uh, <laughs> And then soon after, uh, Charles made a uh, uh, an email list for all of the people who had accepted once it was all finalized, and uh, and Mary sent me a very kind email saying that um, Gordon had made a copy of that letter, that my submission letter, and sent it to her, and oh. uh, uh, and then she had started to follow me, and like wh- wh- whenever she came across you know stories of mine and stuff, and that she was really excited to meet me, and so. Um, it was at Blue Heaven, and gosh, I can't remember what year that was, Mary. Was that in t- uh, 2000 and... Long time ago. Two or three, something like that, um, uh, that, that we, we first met, and, uh, but that's how, that's how it all started, though, but it had been, you know, probably about four or five years since since I'd started to read her stories. And then we developed a huge email correspondence. Mm-hmm. I mean, we yes. were for years and years and years. Well, you yeah. told me, Mary, that you really didn't know anybody in the field for a long time, except for except for Gordon, I guess, Gordon Van, Van Gelder. Um, yeah, well, I didn't really know him. You know, I didn't know anybody. Um, well, this, somebody... that was, you know. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Um, well, I was just going to say that was, I was really, uh, that was just such a wonderful thing that um, Charles Coleman Finley did with this Blue Heaven workshop, mm. inviting me. Nobody knew me, you know, nobody mm. knew anything about yeah. me. And out of the blue, I got this invitation. And um, that's where I first started to get to know people. And um, I thought it was a really nice thing to do and kind of unusual. And by then you developed probably a number of fans like Christopher who you didn't even know were your readers, I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, well, after Map of Dreams came out, uh, and, and, and Chris, you were at the uh, ICFA when Mary won the Crawford, weren't you? Or Unfortunately, you? no, I wasn't. I was in, I, I think I was in Japan that year. Oh, that's right. That's right. You were, that was, that was when you were off in Japan. But yeah, uh, one of, well, one of the things that I, I had, you know, sent a copy of, um, map of dreams where I'd told Peter Straub to get a copy and he insisted on sitting in on the locust interview with Mary. Um, and I think that he does that. He, he does that sort of thing because he thought these are really amazing stories. And uh, I, I don't think that intimidated you, but I do remember there's a sense that at some point, Mary, you realized a lot of fairly important people were reading your fiction. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I, I don't know what to say about that. I, I couldn't figure out why he wanted to sit there. But like I told you, I, I felt really bonded to him afterwards because, you know, we had a nice conversation and, and he was very quiet throughout. And then the next time to. I saw him was at World Fantasy and I went up and hugged him, which to this day I apologize for because I think it was probably inappropriate. Oh. But I no. felt like we'd had this wonderful, you know, like conversation only because he sat and listened to me talk and talk and talk. <laughs> well, we have, as long as we're um, talking about your fiction, a scoop. I hope it is a scoop. 
for the Cood Street podcast, and it has to do, Mary, with your first novel. Yay, you want to tell us yeah. about that? So my first novel is being published by Source Books, and they have an imprint called Landmark, and it's books that they pick that they think would be really great for book clubs. And I just found out um, about a week ago. So that's my big happy news. That's and wonderful. Yay. Yeah. yeah. Do, we have yeah. A Do we have a title? Well, it tentatively titled A Taste of Ash and Honey. A great title. That's a good title. And it's a title it's that sort of resonates with some of your stories. <laughs> <laughs> now, is this the witch book? <laughs> As, as, as long as we're congratulating people, we should – one. well, actually, we haven't since Mary has never been on the podcast. I guess we can go back to last year's Shirley Jackson Award and congratulate you for that. Mm-hmm. And we should congratulate Christopher for Before and Afterlives, which only came out earlier this year, uh, which is a terrific yeah. collection. It's a brilliant book. It really it's is. Beautiful. So we're – Beautiful, beautiful – feel to it and cover and wonderful stories well when when we started our um, discussion our, our ill-fated discussion at Wiscon uh, I had this idea which may we, we can dismiss this in 30 seconds if it's, if it's not going to work we had this idea of uh, the fact that both of you are native Midwesterners uh, Ohio and, and Wisconsin and that there's a lot of Midwesternness in your fiction I was thinking about this actually from reading some of Chris's stories um, the one, oh, what's the, the one that, the one that's really grim about Youngstown, uh, and <laughs> which one? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> but I Lindsay? know. I think I think Lindsay. you mean the one for sorrow. Um, no, no, one for sorrow. I well, the the story, the the dead boy story that was the kernel of one for sorrow is in the collection, right? Right. But the one I'm thinking is plenty, which really depicts this kind of post-apocalyptic town, which is Youngstown. And I thought, that's, okay, that's a very Midwestern thing, these sort of failed industrial towns that were once, you know, uh, part part, part of the heartland. And and we were talking about this a little bit, and, uh, and, and Mary, you said that also a lot of your stories, even though they're not specifically set in the Midwest, have that kind of landscape feel to them. Yeah. And so my theory was this. that we have had in American literature, and this is, Jonathan, this is why you got confused, because Midwestern means something in America. Yeah. There's Southern Gothic. There's, there's, there's the whole Faulkner, Flannery, O'Connor, uh, et cetera, all the way down to, I don't know, maybe Joe Lansdale. There's, there's New England Gothic. There's the whole Lovecraft school and, and so forth and so on. There's even the California Gothic. There probably is some Pacific Northwest, Molly Gloss, there you go. But Great. Midwestern fantasy is not something I've heard anybody talk about. And yet, why don't we have our own tradition here in the Midwest? I, I sometimes think that we do have it, but that it's not necessarily acknowledged, uh, that it, it's, it's maybe an invisible regional literature, uh, as regional literature goes, in, in, in America mm-hmm. at least. Um, I mean, in the end, everybody in the United States does call us flyover country, you know. Um, I I think that that actually is to some extent part of how people treat the literature from the Midwest as well. I think so. And I think there is a thing called like a Midwestern reserve. And I think that as a people, they're not necessarily inclined in identifying themselves from the outside in as much Mm -hmm. as from the inside out. So to right. sort of to take that step and say, you know, here's what we're doing. That's not a real Midwestern thing. It's like we're doing it. Do you want it? You know. That's a good Very way much. to put it. Yeah. Um, I think, um, and, and, and there's, I mean, we're probably being a little bit, um, I don't know, totalizing to use an academic term to to try to treat the Midwest even as a region in that sense because. Um, and I thought about this just in terms of thinking about the differences between Wisconsin and Ohio, because I was thinking about the stories that you write. Wisconsin has maybe the greatest tr- serial killer tradition in American literature. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, got... it, they're all from here. Yeah, <laughs> it's you... really, 
Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer and R Robert Block was grew up in Milwaukee and he wrote Psycho about Ed Gein and, and Peter right. Straub. And uh, even Neil Gaiman's got a serial killer in Wisconsin in American Gods. Um, mm -hmm. What about some Ohio? Like I'm less, but but Ohio is kind of the post-industrial landscape. Um, all of a right. sudden, it was it used to be the industrial landscape. Yeah, it's the giant that's fallen. <laughs> <laughs> but Gary, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What about somebody like Clifford Simak? Minnesotan. Hmm. Yeah, from Wisconsin. Well, no, he's from Minnesota. He was born in Wisconsin. I think he, may have been, he was born in Wisconsin, but he was a newspaper man in the St. Paul, Minneapolis. University of Wisconsin Madison. You're looking this stuff up again. You're always yeah. doing this. <laughs> always checking stuff up on Google when I'm trying to. Okay, fine. I, I guess because I mean, okay, I don't know that much culturally about the Midwest, but when I'm li listening to sort of, apart from the serial killer stuff, to what you're describing, a book like oh. Waystation sounds like it might fit into what you're talking about. Waystation is a very Midwestern novel, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, I, and Mary and Chris, I don't know if you've read old time uh -huh. science fiction, but this this is a rural guy, and I'm pretty sure he's in rural Minnesota, but he may be in Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, basically, a farmer whose whose front porch, whose farm is is a waystation for this intergalactic um, <laughs> commerce that's going on. I think there's an intergalactic war, and nobody knows about it except uh, this one character, um, and and all of Simex. <laughs> It's a wonderful story. There's a wonderful sense of rural northern Midwest in it, I guess. Um, and I suppose you could even argue that Robert Heinlein came from Butler, Missouri. Uh, and there's Mary, what you were describing is that sort of no nonsense. You know, we're just here. Take what make make what you will of us. Was was an Heinlein? It was a Heinlein attitude as well. Very much. But that that's science fiction, and and, 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 and I yeah. was thinking about yeah. specifically fantasy because I know Chris, both you and Mary have written science fiction stories, but not that many of them. Right. Is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, I've only written a, like I think three um, that that I could count as science fiction, and probably one of those is questionable. But <laughs> um, but Mary, how many have you written? Uh, you know, I don't know because I don't know, but I, I do think that, that, um, I'm more of a fantasy writer. Even when I write things sure. that might be, I know. That then we get into the whole definition thing that goes on for years and years and years. But I, I feel like even when I write things that people say can can be science fiction, I still kind of feel like it's fantasy. You know, future fantasy or something yeah. like that. Sure. Well, the yeah. two stories I think of, which have kind of political overtones, are um, well, one is Bread and Bombs, uh, which is yeah. clearly it's clearly a kind of dystopian anti-war story, and it's it's in some world you know in which people no longer can fly an airplane safely. And the other one, oh, the uh, Evidence of Love in the Case of Abandonment, um, and these are both oh, kind yeah. of dystopians. But but the feeling, I think you're right. I think the feeling of the communities are these kind of um, well, fantasy communities—they're not—they're not extrapolated in a way like, okay, this is what um, Cedarburg, Wisconsin, is going to look like in 30 years. It's—it's it's a community that has both a fantasy feel to it, even though science fictional things are happening in the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. Oh, good. <laughs> but, I think it's amazing, even when you think about like stories like uh, the evidence of love in a case of abandonment. You know, it to me that feels like very midwestern. I mean, the way that they they're they're basically. I mean, it has been a couple of years since I've read it. Are they hanging or shooting? Or the, the, in any case, they're they're executing uh, women who have previously had abortions in uh, yeah. sort of like post facto. You know, um, could have been years and years and years and years ago in this in this dystopian society. Mm -hmm. But they do it, if I remember correctly, like it's a high school football field. It's a public. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's right. I just to me, there was something about that. I was like, that would only be in the Midwest. That's where and stuff maybe happens. Cheerleaders going and, you know, <laughs> That's that's one of the great gathering places in the Midwest, the high school football right. field. 
It is. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a football area, you know, football region. I think, football region. But go ahead. No, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I, can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, okay, yeah, I, I was just going to say that I think that I have more of a sense of the Midwest. Um, and Chris, you probably have the same thing after having left it for so long. You know, I moved away when I was 18, and I lived in California, and I lived on um, the East Coast in upstate New York, and I came back here in my 40s. You know, so I came back. I, I do have kind of a sense that it's always been in my fiction, but mm-hmm. I have that experience of being both of it and the other coming back. Right. Or, do you, did you have that, Chris, too, after Japan? I had it before I went to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, and I think that probably even though you left at an early, a somewhat early age, that you probably felt that way too. I mean, I get that sense from you, like in our conversations that we've had about being from the Midwest and not feeling what, like at home here in some ways, and in others completely at home, is sort of neither fish nor fowl kind of feeling. Um, and, um, I mean, yeah, I didn't feel like I fit here for a number of reasons uh, for, for most of my life. It was, uh, you know, for, for me, it was that, you know, I grew up in a, a rural uh, uh, agricultural and, you know, uh, and uh, working class family, you know, my, on my grandfather's farm, we, it was, it was a, a beef farm and, uh, and he also worked in the steel mills and my dad did too initially. And, you know, this was just, the 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 kind of uh, I you know and I was basically this this weird kid who was artistic and and I was had intellectual inclinations and a, a really overactive imagination and that really mm-hmm. was something that that didn't fit here um, which you know Midwest is nothing if not practical and and grounded uh, in reality and and my head was always off in the cloud. Well, I, the, the, one of your great stories, I think one of your very best stories, is about literally about returning to the Midwest. I'm thinking, obviously, of Map of Seventeen, uh, right. which I think should should be winning all sorts of awards. Uh, and and uh, it's kind of, well, it, but but the whole the whole way the story is constructed, and it gets into another issue that fascinates me about both of your stories, um, is this Midwestern family trying to deal with uh, a, literally a prodigal son who's come back with, um, with, 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 with a partner who's even stranger than the family can imagine. But right. narrated, if I'm, am I right? Am I remembering this right? Narrated you're, from the you're point right. of view you're of right. yeah. the younger sister. And that younger narrated sister, yeah, uh, and I, it, it, it strikes me that that younger sister's voice is a perfect Midwestern voice. She wants out. But she can't quite deal with what out means yet. So, so right. there's a story within a story of her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she has her her brother uh, who has left and and created a life for himself outside of of that territory and mm-hmm. uh, in New York in artistic circles. And uh, you know, he comes back and he's gay and he you know here's he's trailing a boyfriend who's wealthy yeah. and it's pretty much everything that. Uh, uh, she's not, and, and you know, and everything that she wants and is afraid of at the same time. And I think that that is is in some ways, uh, you know, how how I felt at that age at, at seventeen, you know, where I, I really wanted to to expand um, and and to leave, and at the same time didn't know how to do it. Um, you know, it. it, it I, I think this is this is partially when I talk about you know being from Ohio and being from the Midwest is is uh-huh. in, you know uh, from from that type of family is that uh, you know I didn't have a network beyond where I actually was located you know there yeah. you know that, that all of my family lived within a mile of each other there was no far flung relatives in some other state who, <laughs> that you know you know, worked in, in some kind of other industry or anything like that. And so it was like, you know, feeling at a loss, wanting something else, but, but, but not knowing how to, to, to take myself from where I was to where that uh, other place, you know, was, Yeah. But, you know, to go back to, to what Mary said after I, 
I, I moved to Japan for a couple of years, and when I came, you know, um, came back home, it was, I definitely did feel even more other than that. But at the same time, strangely enough, I did feel like I had a grip on the place that I didn't as a young person, that um, uh, because I, I, I did figure out how to get out of it and, and to go somewhere else. And I, and I learned how to live in another culture completely outside of America. Um, when I came back, even though I still felt different in, in, in my own ways, um, I also felt like I was able to, to become a part of the place more naturally, if that makes any sense at all. But. No, it, it makes sense. I mean, it, I mean, partly you're back in, the, in an academic environment, which is always a kind of artificial environment, you know, right. within the culture. Um, but uh, Mary, did you feel like that you didn't belong in the Midwest when you were a kid here, or did that not bother you at all? Mary? Mary's dropped off. Mm. Oh, we may have lost Mary. For a minute, just for a minute. She, she, uh, we're trying to get her okay, back. She'll be back. Continue, continue on for a second, then we'll see okay. how we go. Well, we'll, we'll I'm okay. here. Okay, there you go, yeah. Yay. Yeah, you're here. Sorry. Uh, we, were, we were about to say, Mary, did you feel like the Midwest was someplace you had to get out of? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did. Okay. I, I remember being little, and not you know, but I used to walk to school, and I walked over to the railroad tracks and um i used to look at them and i'd look at, at how they went in either direction you know to the horizon and i'd say someday these tracks are going to take me out of here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, oh, yeah. I, I, I had to say i well i what? grew up in a small town in missouri and i used to love to listen to trains because i thought that's going somewhere besides here yeah and i didn't care where it was um, my favorite story about the, about the train thing. What the, the the trains? The trains in the Midwest are. I mean, they're they're constant. I think it's like, you know, back backbone to the place. It, it actually created structure for me in a way, in in a psychological structure that was like a constant. It's in what way? What do you mean? Yeah, explain that a little bit more. What you guys are talking about, and you know, this, these shared experiences with with the whole idea that this these things lead to elsewhere. Yeah. Well, yeah. That 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 yeah. shows up even in Bradbury. I think everybody who grew up in a small midwestern town heard trains at night, and and yeah. thought, where are they going, and how do I? I get I, re- I remember being um, going to a neighbor's sleepover, and we got to sleep on the um, back porch. And uh-huh. the train went past, and I, I, I was amazed because it was actually a passenger train, and it was yeah. night, and the little the lights were on, and it was like there's people in there, and you can get away. <laughs> 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 and I was I was enchanted by it. It was yeah. just a whole. It was a, I don't know why that was more enchanting than cars, you know. But there was an idea that you know the train was a way out. And when I got older, I did take you know a few cross country train trips. So I love the train. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's something mystical about them. And I think maybe they are um, more mystical to people in the Midwest because the Midwest is never a destination. I mean, I, I grew up in a small town right. called Sedalia, right? And there's a train station there, but the trains, they weren't going there. They were going, I always imagined they were going from New York to Los Angeles or from Chicago to Houston or whatever it is. Um, and so they were not, um, they, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but there was something <laughs> magical about them. It, well, if you look at the number of Midwestern stories that involve trains and that involve the idea of even, even Kids' books, even Chris Brown, Brandon Allsburg's The Polar Express, is essentially yeah. a Midwestern story. Yeah. It's essentially a yeah. middle-class Midwestern town, uh, and a kid gets on a train. It's a really romantic thing. Yeah. Okay, my favorite Midwestern story, which I have to sort of insert here because it's not going to be appropriate to insert anywhere, <laughs> is a story which uh, I, I, I was talking to uh, when our failed podcast of Wisconsin, I was talking to both Chris and Mary about my theory that James Thurber is one of the important American fantasists. Mm-hmm. There's a story which is in, I think it's in one of Thurber's memoirs, maybe the years with Ross, in which he was in New York. He had become one of the hot 
humorist in New York City. He was the major writer for the uh, New Yorker magazine in the 1920s. And Harold Ross, the famous, crusty, native New Yorker, got into an argument with, with Thurber, in which Thurber was saying, a great American literature comes from the Midwest. It does not come from New York. And he was talking about Mark Twain, and he was probably talking about Booth Tarkington, and he was probably talking about himself. And, and Ross, offended at this, said, if all the great American writers come from the Midwest, why do they all end up in New York? And Thurber said, <laughs> Thurber said because the competition was too tough. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that that pretty much says everything anybody ever has to say ever again about Midwestern fantasy, I suppose. Well, unless you're going to try and suggest that that, that it stands in for the idea of, of romantic escape anywhere, because I mean. Sitting, you know, speaking with someone sort of in a, you know, on the other side of the world, seeing American culture yeah. evolve, this idea of um, getting out of small towns, which seems to be a perennial, I guess, anywhere, but seems to apply to the yeah. Midwest very, very well, seems to come out of everything from Capra's It's a Wonderful Life to mm -hmm. Stephen King Stand By Me kind of thing. They, they, yeah. they all seem very same. And it's that same kind of thing, the, the, the romantic or the exciting way of getting out of this small, stultifying place that doesn't uh, appeal to you. And now that I think about it, I mean, even something like, uh, what is it, uh, Clive Barker's Aberrant books are basically the right. same thing. Small, you know, a girl, small Western, Midwestern town, uh, and it, it's transformed when something magical changes around it rather than the, this town which she feels like she has to get out of, you know, is the source of her. Well, Jonathan, does that mean that there's an, there's an Australian or even an Irish version of what we're talking about? I don't know if there's an Irish one, but there's, I don't think there, well, there may be an Australian one in some sense, but the, Australia is such a different kind of a place in, in the sense that you've got 90% of the population live in six large cities. Yeah, on the coast. So, yeah, so, so, so there's very, very few populated small towns to want to get out of, if you like. Uh, whereas in the United, in somewhere like the States, and I assume actually, probably throughout Europe, or so, you know, anywhere that's well settled, mm. you have that network of small towns. There's always another one a handful of miles away that's probably right. much the same as the one you're in. So if you're in Youngstown, I, I assume within 20 miles mm. or 30 miles, there's another three sit, three towns that aren't that much different. Right. Whereas here, unless you're in a couple of small rural areas through the... Southwest of, or the south, sorry, the southeast of uh, Victoria, New South Wales, and maybe the Western Wheat Belt. Really, if you're not in the city, the next nearest place is a thousand kilometers away. Yeah, um, we don't have nearly that much empty space in the United States anymore. And that, but I think you've got, I think you've got a point. I think the idea that being in a small provincial town and wanting to go to the city even shows up, and this is why I was getting at the geographical thing, even shows up in fantasy in completely imaginary environments. I mean, one, um, one new novel, which I think is brilliant, and I think, I, th I hope both Mary and Chris know it, is, is Sophia Samatar's A Stranger in a Laundria, which is a complete fantasy world, but it again is about a young man in a provincial town whose father is a tradesman who dreams of getting the education and culture he can uh, obtain in a city. Um, and I know from talking to Sophia, she's not a Midwesterner wanting to go to Kansas City or New York. She has yeah. a much more colorful life than any of us. Right. Yeah, I think there's a universality to it at, at some level. I mean, it for, for me, it's localized, but, but I think the experience exists, um, you know, with different shapes to it, depending on where you're, where the setting is. You know, there's always going to be places where there are people that um, who want to be elsewhere. Yeah. And in some ways, I think that the reason why I was attracted to science fiction and fantasy as a young person was that it, you know, it, it epitomized that that feeling is that you know that transportation elsewhere. If you couldn't physically get elsewhere, then imaginatively you could by by way of those types of stories. But what strikes me as interesting is that, I mean, to, to some degree, the idea of leaving small towns is an escapist idea. When people talk casually about uh, fantasy fiction, particularly on, on a very 
uh, superficial level. They talk about it as escapist fiction. But both of you are writing right. fantasy, and there's no way either of you you could talk about your work being remotely uh, escapist. It's taking right. that this escapist language and using it to discuss what are very serious, real personal issues about expressing yourselves and the world you're in, which seems to be mm -hmm. a very different kind of a thing to be doing with those tools. Yeah. I don't think of my my fiction as escapist at all. No. I think of I think of like um I think of what most people call reality now as pretty escapist. I think and I think I don't know if you agree, Chris, but I feel like we're both more diving in rather than yeah. escaping. And it and yeah. it, and giving giving a language for doing that. That's also more dreamlike or, you know, outs outside of self. Um, I mean, less, less you know, real housewives kind of language <laughs> and more uh, looking more inward and having, uh, okay, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think no, that's absolutely No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, like the whole idea of es escapism, it, I mean, it has a bad rap, Um but, I mean, maybe deservedly so. I mean, I think there is probably fiction where it, it takes you outside of, of your surroundings, but not in a good way. Um, I, I think that I, the kind of uh, escapism that I find to be a rigorous intellectual and emotional kind of escapism is the kind that takes you outside of, of, of where you're at in order to see it for what it is and returns you to yeah. that place sort of knowing more about it than, than you did prior to imaginatively leaving it. It, it gets you outside of yourself and, and that, but all, at the same time allows you to look, you know, more deeply inward. I think that's true. There's also a um, distinction that was made by C.S. Lewis of all people. Uh, who is problematical in all sorts of ways. But he was defending science fiction and fantasy in this essay, and he he said escapism can mean one of two things. It can mean the flight of the deserter, which is which is the way it's frequently used to mean, or it can mean the escape of the prisoner. Um, mm. In one in one case, you're contemptuous toward the escapee. In the other case, the escapee is the hero. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things. That, go ahead, Mary. I, and I was just going to say, you know, sort of circling back to to some of the stories we've all been referring to, you know, and I think, Gary, you were talking, too, about the geography. I think it's mm -hmm. interesting how, how our longing is defined by our landscape. And I think mm -hmm. that um, the, the Midwestern, you know, landscape is, can, can have a lot of flat space. And a lot of you know horizon, um, mm -hmm. the the cities can be dying, and I think that comes through in in what we long for and the way we express it. And Jonathan's talking about you know in Australia and, and that kind of longing and sort of creating the um, the external dream that that people can find to be actually healing and and an opportunity to to find a different way of being. I think something that people respond to in Chris's stories, I think uh -huh. you can tell me if I'm wrong, Chris, but just as a <laughs> sense, I think, and I think there's a lot of younger people too who are like, oh my gosh, there's feelings. You know, there's feelings mm. here and, and they're big and they can be really bigger yeah. than I know how to deal with. But here's a story that's actually talking about emotions and, and, mm -hmm. um, well, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Mentioning Australia in that, I just made point. While you were saying that, and you were talking about you know these escape being a kind of healing, that the good chunk of Map of Dreams does take place in Australia, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and I guess I didn't. I guess I didn't get get a lot of stuff right, but um, I read a lot about it, and I I was I I was very. I thought it was an opportunity to explore some of the um, the culture that I maybe didn't completely understand. But I liked a lot of the information about the dreaming and the response to the yeah. landscape there and, and the um, the idea of crossing those borders. Uh-huh. 
I think that probably the same thing happens. I, Jonathan, you can answer this better than I can, but uh, I think there's a tendency on the part of Americans, probably more than on the part of Brits, to think that if you're Australian, you know all sorts of things about Aborigine culture. And the reason I say this is because I realize when I talk to Brits that they think, they assume I know all sorts of things about Native American culture, which I don't. Uh, I, I, guess, I, have, yeah, I guess that may be true. I mean, uh, I certainly wouldn't pretend, and I don't think most of my friends would pre- presume to uh, say that they understand a lot about uh, Native Australian culture. I think it would be presumptuous in the in the extreme. Now, the thing that has changed in my lifetime is, I guess, the awareness of just how little we do know and the need to be more sensitive towards it. Um, mm. Certainly, you know, if you told me, for example, when I when I was I mean, when I was growing up. The, the picture of uh, Aboriginal culture was certainly mm-hmm. um, a simple caricature. And a lot of the cultural reaction was on a really, frankly, quite racist, s- simple caricature. It's probably still, I hate to say, just as racist or, or a, vi- a mild variation on being as racist, but at least it's mildly more informed. And part of what that extra level of inform- being informed has led to is people be, you know, being even more reluctant to talk about it. I mean, I've got writer friends who refuse to write about the dreaming because uh-huh. they, you know, they, they, you know, one friend of mine, Sean Williams, wanted to write a novel because he'd grown up near an Aboriginal community, I believe, and wanted to write about it. But he asked these people and was like, no, we think it would be really offensive to us. So he didn't. Oh. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's not an uncommon feeling that, that, that I've come across you know, more and more, and which I, I have sort of some sympathy with. I mean, one thing that's happened in the last five years that I've noticed is, at least on our national broadcast of the, uh, the ABC, all of the television programs are generally preceded by a statement that uh, this program will feature images of people who are deceased because that is a very significant taboo in um, uh-huh. Native Australian culture, or Aboriginal culture. Um, and in fact, I noticed there's a faux pas. I don't know if you've heard of the Australian singing group, Yothu Yindi, but their lead singer died yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a big photo of him up on the, uh, of one of the Australian national uh, newspapers. And alongside it on their website, alongside the photo says, you know, caution, this article contains photos of someone recently deceased. And you're going, but you've already presented the, picture, the image of someone who's recently yeah. deceased, which will be disturbing and potentially offensive or whatever else to, to the local community. So it's, it's, it's a really nuanced culture that we understand very poorly and have historically coped with abysmally badly. You know, I think it's the only way to look at right. it. You know, so. And I, I wouldn't even presume to say whether we've handled it better or worse than this, you know, the U.S. has with uh, Native Americans, with your, own, with your own first people. But it remains a constantly troubled uh, issue here. Mm-hmm. Deeply troubled with, with enormous issues out in our um, remote communities, particularly, and I've got no idea how how we're ever going to resolve it. Frankly, so mm. sorry, that was more than you wanted to know, wasn't it? No, <laughs> well, I mean, it's really it, interesting. It, it really it really sounds to me like you're way ahead of the United States if you're actually talking about Native Australian sensibilities in the presenting of a photograph in an obituary. I don't think. Yeah. Any media in the United States is that sensitive to Native American culture? No, no. Uh, I wouldn't want to take any kudos. I mean, Australia has such a terrible history of interacting with its mm-hmm. with its first people. It really does. That um, taking any kind of credit on a cultural level for, for change is perhaps understating the distance that the country still has to travel in order to achieve some kind of reasonable way of interacting mm. and living with uh, its first people, which it does very poorly, I think, still. You know? right. I mean, I don't know how, how it is there, really, but here we went through an extended period of effectively just throwing money at the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, to no productive effect, really, I think, in the end. Um, and similarly, I mean, there was a period in the 50s where they tried just taking all the kids away from their families and mm. raising them with white people. Which that is, happened here as well. Which is appalling. And yeah. you have these remote communities with, with poor resources. And in some ways, it's very hard to resource them, you have to, have to admit. If you've got a small community of a handful of people who are 1,000 or 2,000 know, kilometers away from the nearest other community, how do you give them 
running water and education and the kind of things that we would expect in a major city. And how do you make that useful and meaningful to, to them when they have chosen to live in that situation, you know, that location? It, it's, it's a very difficult thing to resolve. And as I say, I don't know how we ever will. Um, whereas, it's, I mean, you only get, seem to get, well, we only seem to get caricatures of Native America as well from here. You know, mm. Well, I think that's true. Yeah, uh, and I think I don't know, Chris. Um, I, yep. Have you or Mary ever tried to deal with that issue in your fiction? I mean, it's not—it's not an issue that's particularly a midwestern one. It's a little bit west of here, but yeah, um, I haven't. I'm, uh, you know, um, I went through a, a period uh, where I was investigating Native American cultures as a young person um, out of interest. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I've never tried to deal with it in my fiction or in any kind of nonfiction or anything like that. Um, I, I didn't feel like I had anything at hand. I would say, like, you know, probably writers further... Uh, into the middle of of the states, you know that where where there are actual tribes that still, you know, are are as yeah that that have a robust identity as as mm. as that can be you know related. Um, it's still a re relative thing, but you know, in Minnesota, I'm thinking about you know they have a a, a really strong Native American presence as that goes. Um, I didn't have anything like that at hand. I, I think most of the the tribes in Ohio, the the native presences here, mm -hmm. had largely been you know run out of it uh, or or completely decimated at some point. And um, so there was, you know, all we have left here are are um, are, are, are are leftovers of, of that that culture. I remember you know traveling into Southern Ohio as an undergraduate student and visiting things like the Snake Mound and the the City of the Dead and in Chillicothe and things like this. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's from a, a group of Native uh, people that were you know not entirely sure exactly who they are anymore even. Mary in Wisconsin has some. Certainly has casinos, which is what most people in Chicago think of when they think of Native Americans <laughs> in Wisconsin. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about that. Um, he, I know that well, that's kind of a horrible story, but I don't even know if I should tell it. Should I tell the horrible story? But when I when we were growing, when I was growing up, I know my father took us to some park, and it was you know like the the mounds or something, and. And it must have been in Wisconsin, and you could look through um, a glass in the ground yeah. at a dead, at a dead Native American's oh body, you know, yes. and that yeah. that was my growing up experience, which was just, um, you know, including there there was just was a lot of racism mm. when I was growing up, um, but but now there's there's there is a a tribal voice in Wisconsin, and they're active right now. In um, there's some issues about hunting wolves and things like that, mm. but I don't, I, I don't really know a lot about it, and I never have really tried to engage it. I, th I think my guess is that when, when fantasy and 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 or science fiction tries to engage this, it it does it more effectively. In a metaphorical way. In other words, you can use yeah. a lot of these issues. Now, the, the, when I'm thinking about science fiction writers, the one I think who has probably dealt in the most sophisticated way with native tribal cultures is Ursula Le Guin. Yeah, Le Guin. Yeah. She grew up with a, with, with, with Ishii in her house, you know, the, her, her mom's book, uh, Ishii, The Last of His Tribe. Her parents yeah. were anthropologists. Uh, she writes something like "Always Coming Home," and she imagines a society which is enormously sensitive to real societies, but doesn't mm -hmm. step on any of their actual beliefs. Right. That's probably a really good way to do it. I think it probably is, and I think maybe the I, only way you can. I think that's something that. Well, I, I was just going to say I think that is something that um, I've gotten from attending Wisconsin. It's a pretty good education in. Well, I mean, I think it's been good in in 
in responsibility in um, in trying to handle some of these topics and in rigorous responsibility. And I don't think I really had that when I, I wrote Map of Dreams. So I, I think it's been good for me. I think it's been an important discussion. But I think what you just said is a really good way to do it. You know, to, mm. to you can handle those issues um, by going into a, a different world entirely. Yeah, you, right. you, you 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 can't escape your own privilege in dealing with those issues, but yeah. but the issues can't, in some sense, can't not be dealt with. Um, right. So, so I would think, as a writer, as a fiction writer, which I am not, uh, there would be this dilemma: if you wanted to address this, you don't want to, um, you you don't want to step on sensibilities like we can't have representations of the recently dead. But you don't want to avoid dealing with that, and so a way of dealing with it is to deal with sort of the uh, parameters of the issue without dealing of, with cultural specifics. Um, that seems like a really respectful way to do it. There's, there, there's another, this is interesting, I don't know why we got into tribalism. Well, I know, but we can talk about anything we want to. Um, <laughs> this, I think the science fictional way of doing this, the most interesting science fiction novel that deals in a very indirect way with Native American cultures is probably a novel by George R. Stewart called Earth Abides. Classic from 1950, and it's about the end of the world. It's basically about most of the population dying off and the, um, the sort of patriarch, the guy who... Re remains alive and uh, remains alive through generations of the novel tries to preserve some of our civilization but instead instead what he what he want, what he what he sees is his grandchildren and great grandchildren recreating a tribal society and and, mm. and sort of fetishizing and iconicizing if that's a word you know the beliefs of what we had but essentially he deals with the issue of, of, of tribalism and relationship to the land in a way that uh, is probably, as of 1950, anthropologically very sound, but which doesn't actually deal with any ex extent Native American cultures. It's, it's, it's sort of reimagining what it must have been like to come over that bridge on the Bering Strait 40,000 years ago and, and start a new civilization. What's that called again, Gary? It's called Earth Abides. Oh. It's as opposed to the, the dune abides. <laughs> <laughs> that that rem it reminds me, of, in some ways, of John Crowley's Engine Summer too. Yes, yes, very much. That's the same sort of book. Um, the sense where you get at the idea of how societies are made uh, right. from the ground up, uh, and right. that's that's a very science fictional idea to deal with. Although relatively few science fiction writers have taken it on. George Stewart, who wrote Earth Abides, was best known for a book called Ordeal by Hunger, which was the first extensive nonfiction account of the Donner Party. So he was essentially, um, he was a fascinating writer. And Jonathan, tell me I'm rambling anytime now. He had, written two, he had written two novels in the 40s that were very bestsellers. One was called Storm and one was called Fire. Yeah. Storm was told from the point of view of a massive thunderstorm that devastated the Plain States. And Fire was a novel from the point of view of an enormous forest fire. Hmm. Oh. Wow. Very are, interesting. <laughs> neither one of them are science fiction stories, but they absolutely work that way. Right. Wow. It's because of the point of view, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, the point of view, you, you realize, wait a minute, fire is a motive force. Fire seems to have motivations, whether, right. uh, which we can never understand. Right, right, right. But it's its own force. Mm -hmm. So what are what are you both working on these days? I mean, Mary, you've got a novel which is about to come out in in, in less than a year, we hope. Yep. Uh, Chris has a collection of short stories out. What three months ago? Four months ago? Yeah, it came out in, at the end of March. Yeah. And it's, it's got some great stuff in. Hmm. <laughs> Okay. Mary? Hello, Mary? I missed something. Yeah, I missed that last little comment. Yeah, Mary, I missed the last comment you made. Have we lost Mary? I don't think so. 
maybe. Chris, are you Chris? I'm still here. Well, we'll see if Mary okay. comes back. So, did, um, do you have a, new, a book following on from um, before and after lives? I mean, I don't, I don't want to sort of. No, no. Set it uh, aside, uh, aside immediately because it's, it's still fresh and young and new. No, it's yeah. fine. Yeah, before and after lives is yes, it's it's fresh and young, even though it's a retrospective for the most part. I <laughs> 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 uh, the I am finishing up a new novel called Wonders of the Invisible World, which um, is set back here um, in uh-huh. a, a sort of little imaginary uh, town similar to the one in One for Sorrow, my first novel. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, I'm hopefully going to be done with the last sort of polished draft that I do on things at the end of this month. And on that book, and then I'm also working sort of off and on to the side of that on a collection, of, a, a sort of concept collection um, of short stories. Uh, I'm sort of going back and forth on the, what, what the, the complete collection title will be, but it'll either be Invisible Men or, or Monstrous Alterations. And they're all retellings of classic, uh, what I think of as classic genre fiction. Um, uh-huh. Jonathan published the first story uh, in that collection uh, in in Eclipse Online, uh, which was a retelling of uh, H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. And And we should should probably mention also that uh, um, what Birds and Bees came out last year. Birds and Um, Birthdays, yeah. I'm sorry, Birds birds and Birthdays, right. (laughs) Uh, which I thought was fascinating because bees, though. <laughs> well, there was a there was a there was a kind of meme that started a little bit and didn't seem to pick up. Of, of, of I guess women surrealists is that a fair thing to say? And it's a yeah. Um, because that was this that question that issue that fascination was the same genesis of um, Elizabeth Hand's novel Generation Loss. And and I thought well uh, because there's this fascinating period in, in in the 20s where you have you talk about Lenore Harrington right Lenore Harrington uh, Dorothea Tanning and Remedios Varro those are the three that that I uh, have worked with uh, right. their and, imagery from their paintings yeah and the third one I was unfamiliar with uh, I, I know Liz was interested in Claude Cahun who was one of three or four women surrealist photographers actually associated with moment. What's the fascination right. with, this, with, with, with historical surrealism? Um, you know, for me, I, I've always loved surrealism. And uh, I, as a teenager, the, most of the surrealism that I was exposed to uh, was, I guess, the pop surrealism, like Dolly. Yeah. Uh, and... And... Um, uh, I had posters, you know, that you could get in any kind of like, you know, mall store or something yeah. like that. That I loved the whole. It was a different kind of fantasy for me, um, where it juxtaposed different kinds of images that you didn't think would go together together, and yeah. there was a uh, a real kind of sexual life to the fantasy that um, uh, was, as a teenager, interesting to me. And um, uh, so we started there with surrealism in general, uh, but then as a as a, a, a graduate student, I uh, I came across paintings by uh, Remedios Varro initially, this um, uh, Spanish-born painter who uh, lived out the re- the majority of her life in in Mexico. As you know, most of the surrealists were were um, they were put on a list of dissidents uh, hmm. during the war, and a lot of them tried to escape Europe, and, and many of them didn't, and Mexico was a haven for them. Um, in any case, uh, uh, she and Leonor Carrington were, were mythically best friends, and yeah. um, I, so I found, some, I found, I found these images, uh, some of them in, in, like, that became covers of fantasy literature, uh, uh, that uh, done by Remedio Sparo, and uh, yeah, she was yeah, she, she was the one I didn't know. Uh, of, right, of yeah, but but once you start to look around, they're everywhere. She even did images for like things like Bear Aspirin in the six uh, in the sixties, wow. I think, or the fifties of the sixties. Yeah, um, it was really odd. She was she was sort of everywhere when she once I started to 
to research her. And then I found these these other female artists who were all working at the same time as, as uh-huh. these pop male surrealist artists. And I was like, why don't I know about them? Yeah, exactly. Um, why weren't Those they stuff. like available at, at my B. Dalton bookstore poster section, you know, uh, when I was a teenager? And there was something very different about the, the way that they approached their surrealist fantasy paintings. There was characters. Um, they yeah. weren't they weren't anti-narrative at all. Uh and I thought that as a story, you know, as a, as a storyteller, I was a, that appealed to me. Um, and that was a, that was a Tachyon book we should meant, wasn't it? That was an aqueduct book. No, no, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. Aqueduct. Aqueduct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jonathan, so, are you still with us? I am indeed. I'm trying to see if we can get Mary back, but I think we've, we've lost her. She's sort of still trying to pop back in through piles of fuzz and static, but it's not really quite I, I, working out. I keep out. hearing sort of bleeps. Let's see if we can, well, we'll see if we can connect with her again after we finish the podcast but we must be near the end of our we podcast. are actually at the end of our typical time so maybe um, although I'd, i would love it if mary was here to actually say farewell and thank you to maybe we should just wind up and then we'll see if we can get her back to say farewell to separately as well but um well, well chris you're great i mean we could talk about all kinds of things there we've got to have time. you back on yes <laughs> <laughs> anytime anytime it's been a all pleasure right. I, i've enjoyed it and a great pleasure having Mary here as well. I mean, uh, I, I wish, as I say, we could actually say farewell to her, but, you know, we will separately. So, But yeah. there will be an M. Rickert novel out within a year, which I think is enormously important news. Yep. Uh, and, and presumably Wonders of the Invisible World in maybe, what, a year and a half, maybe with a bit of luck? Mm-hmm. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Jonathan. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, okay, well... On that note, until next week, Gary. Until next week. We're going to talk again. All right. Because that was the latest episode of the Cood Street Podcast. And not to put too fine a point on it, say we're the only bee in your bonnet. Bye. Okay.